today I'm, I'm talking with Charlie O'Donnell. Charlie is one of the, I guess, the central figures of the, the, the New York technology scene of the, the, the startup scene in Manhattan. And so um, I'm really interested to talk with Charlie. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. And I, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't uh, make a slight correction there and make sure that uh, the, the New York tech scene extends beyond Manhattan into the outer boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens and I'm sure even Staten Island and the Bronx. Well, maybe it even heads up to Washington Heights as well, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And you're also uh, obviously working with First Round Capital. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I'm an EIR, which technically stands for Entrepreneur in Residence, but I think more, realistic, uh, more realistically stands for Entrepreneur in Recovery. <laughs> okay. Um, so actually, tell us what you've been doing, like, before you, you got involved with First Round, before um, you, you got involved with... Uh, the stuff you're doing in the New York tech scene? Like, what were you doing, like, five years ago? Well, about five years ago is pretty much around the time where I got uh, started with the tech scene. Uh, like a lot of people in New York, um, I was basically in the finance industry. I, uh, I I grew up here in Brooklyn and, you know, basically had my eyes set on sort of Wall Street um, because that's, you know, obviously, a you know, a major uh, uh, from a career standpoint. And I was working for the General Motors Pension Fund, uh, investing in private equity and venture capital. But most of the venture capital we had done was uh, Boston-based or Silicon Valley. And uh, in, in late 04, two guys with an early stage fund came to pitch us. And that was uh, Fred Wilson and Brad Burnham with Union Square Ventures. Actually, I, I almost didn't even take the meeting. Honestly, I, I, I didn't take the idea of an early stage uh, fund in New York very seriously. Um, I grew up in New York and didn't really know that much about the local startup scene or if there is was one, so it didn't seem to me like a like a viable investment strategy to focus on New York. But, um, so, you, so you almost blew off Fred Wilson like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually. And, it, and it's funny because I was actually, I was reading his blog at the time, but I wasn't putting the name together with, you know, ABC. And so, uh, um, and he wasn't allowed to talk about the fact that he was raising a fund for SEC reasons. So it was only after the meeting that I said, you know, Fred Wilson, where have I heard that name before? I like, oh, that's this blogger that I've been reading, you know. Um and that's when I sort of got to know that there was, in fact, a New York tech scene. Um, you, you better be so, careful. You may not want to tell that story too much because he might not want to take your meeting the next time you need it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'll take my meeting the next time. <laughs> and, and, in fact, he did take my meeting because um, uh, he was uh, an angel investor in a company that I had started. So, um, oh, okay. Um, you know, yeah, so no, I, I know a bit about that. Well. I definitely want to talk about that. Um, I'm really interested in um, the other side of VC. Like, how does that work? You're the first person I've ever talked to that knows the other side. I mean, do, do, do guys like Fred come and pitch you? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I have worked on every level of this. Um, I've, I've been, you know, where VCs come to pitch me for money um, in the institutional uh, private equity world. And... Uh, you know, worked at a venture capital firm and then also gotten money from, from VCs and pitched. It's it's really actually fascinating. When people talk about, uh, you know, is venture capital going away or, you know, or, you know fund returns aren't really that good and, and, you know, what does it say for the asset class? I have a unique perspective on that and, and there's a couple of things. One, I don't think venture is an asset class. I think you know, you could aggregate a whole bunch of funds, and sure, they, their performance somewhat loosely correlates with each other because of the acquisition market or the IPO market or whatever. But the reality of venture capital as a collection of funds is that the best performing funds always do well. They do incredibly well on the top quartile from a risk-adjusted perspective. Um, the asset class on the whole doesn't really perform that well compared to the public markets. I mean, if you just literally took an index fund of every single venture capital fund and every deal done, it's actually not that great. The real separation is your ability to pick managers. You know, kind of like the hedge fund world, if you're with the right people, it's really phenomenal. The tough thing is judging who the right people are and, and trying to judge, 
that based over, you know, sometimes short histories. I mean, you know, for example, uh, I was just reading an article about uh, a Seattle-based fund called Ignition. You know, had some interesting deals, but they've, they've had some, some rough spots in their portfolio. Um, and, and I invested in them with the, the team at GM back in, I would say, 2003, uh, their first institutional fund. And these were a bunch of guys out of Microsoft who had built, you know, key aspects of, of the business there, had phenomenal tech and operating experience. And you would have thought, like, these people understand, you know, technology and the, you know, future of where things are going. And they were certainly entrepreneurial within their enterprises. And, you know, it, it translated to some amount of deal flow, but the performance hasn't necessarily uh, planned out thus far. Um, and and they're, they're great and terrifically smart guys. And then there are lots of other folks that, you know, you, you, you might meet them and they they have somewhat random backgrounds. Like Mike Moritz was a journalist. And he's, you know, maybe the, the um, you know, the top venture capital, uh, you know, in terms of venture capitalists in terms of performance. So, it, you know, evaluation is tough. Um, and, I'm you know, I'm sure those uh, ignition guys, I'm sure they'll, they'll – you know, their performance will, you know, maybe pan out over the, the longer term. Um, and, uh, you know, things like that go up and down. But uh, it's, it's interesting. And certainly a lot of it is not based on prior performance. Um, I mean, how know, does that it, stuff, like, does, the, does GM, like, go and get pissed at, at, at Fred Wilson and Ignition for the underperformance? Or is it like, well, guys, you know, too bad we've lost money here? Like, how, how's, the, how's that the dynamic of that relationship? I'll tell you a little bit more information about, like, how we evaluated uh, Union Square when they came into pitch at GM. So, so first of all, it's getting the meeting with the institutional partner in the first place. And that's not necessarily easy. I mean, Fred and Brad both came from single limited partner funds. You know, so, so Fred was with Flatiron, which was 100% backed by Chase, and Brad was with AT&T Ventures, which was solely owned by AT&T. So they didn't actually know who the major institutional backers and, and VC were. So they used a placement agent, someone, a broker. And despite the fact that they had very good performance, they literally didn't know which state pension funds and which endowments to go to. And so, you know, they found their way to us. You know, we, we took the meeting um, largely because I think they're – uh, you know, the, the, the broker was somebody that, that we knew, and so it was a relationship-based thing. And they uh, had a very good track record. That It's interesting because track records are often point in time, so, you know, not all of the stuff is fully realized. So if you look at their track record, I mean, it, it largely followed the performance of web investments and tech investments. So, you know, looked really good in the late 90s and didn't look so good right around 2000, 2001. Um, and, and, you know, so so the question was, well, you know, were, were they, you know, was it just a flash in the pan? Were, were they just, you know, getting lucky on a couple of well-timed, you know, investments in the late 90s that, you know, anybody could have done well on? And the reality is you're not sure. Now, look at one major part of their track record. The Flatiron track record includes GeoCities. GeoCities is a really interesting thing to evaluate because on one hand, you'll say, well, you know, $3 billion of value, certainly that was not worth $3 billion to Yahoo or anybody else. But at the same time, if you look at the investment thesis, the idea that individuals would want to create their own web pages, that was maybe too early, actually. I mean, it was, it was incredibly forward-thinking. So, you know, this unique investment where it's like, okay, so your investment thesis was correct maybe, you know, five years or ten years too early, um, and you had a really good exit, but it actually didn't turn out to be from a business perspective, worth the money that they acquire paid for it. What credit do I allocate there? Is, is that a good deal or a bad deal? I mean, certainly the outcome was good, but it wasn't actually a real business. And, and maybe had they started six or nine months later, that would have been a zero. And those are the kinds of questions around evaluation that, that um, institutions have to walk through and understand. And the other thing is about the timing, there are a lot of aspects of their portfolio that maybe didn't look so hot in 2004 because they were investments made in 2000 or 2001. 
But if you fast forward to those the investments, a lot of them actually wound up panning out. I mean, they took longer. But there are a lot of investments made in the 2000 or late 2000 and 2001, 2002 timeframe that, you know, were fundamentally sound ideas and companies and maybe just took a little longer to get off the ground. So I think now uh, both Fred and Brad's track record looks even better than it did when they raised their funds. Um, but if you were just looking at it at the wrong time period, things might have looked bleak. So on a scale of 1 to 10, when you were evaluating whether you were going to invest in Union Square Ventures, what, what, what was your, what, what, what would you have rated them? So, so me personally, I rated them a 10 because I really liked them, and what I really liked was their vision of the next wave of, of technology investments to come through. I mean, they were really a, a, about a year ahead of what everybody else was sort of thinking in terms of net native businesses and the term, the term Web 2.0 hadn't been coined yet, but I mean that's what they were talking about. Um, ultimately, GM passed. Um, and oh, they really? Passed on the, yes, and they passed on the basis that it was a first-time fund. So, you know, who knows if these guys are going to get along together? You know, and and you know maybe uh, maybe they'll they'll go their separate ways or you know whatever. You don't really know that they're in it for the long term. And and two, the size. GM was a major institutional investor that could write checks of $50 million, and they were only raising 125 And at most, we could get about 10 or 15 in. And, and we just didn't think it would be enough to move the needle. Um, the funny thing is, is that original fund, that Union Square 2004 fund, has Twitter and a whole bunch of other really good companies in there that probably, I mean, you know, that might be a 10x returning fund. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, sometimes the small stuff actually does move the needle. Um, but it, after we passed, that was the time, moment which I, I wrote to Fred and I said, uh, hey, you know, you know if, if, if all we're going to do here is sort of re-up on the same kind of guys that, that we're, you know, normally working with, it's kind of not as interesting for younger analysts. So what does an analyst at a VC fund do? And Fred's response to me was, you want to come and find out? And that was basically it. That was how I wound up at Union Square Ventures. Oh, you worked at, I didn't know you worked at Union Square Ventures. Yeah, I worked there for two years. Oh, okay, right. <coughs> right, okay. So you, so you worked in funding them, you went and then worked for them, and, and now you're working with First, first Round. Yes, so, so I spent two years at, at Union Square and really, really got to enjoy working with early-stage entrepreneurs. And, and at some point, just almost couldn't help myself in terms of, you know, jumping across the table. And I, and I wound up spending a year at one of their portfolio companies, a company called Oddcast, as a product manager, uh, where I got a really great opportunity to sort of work with technical teams and, and you know, help launch a product. And, and, you know, what their advice to me was, you know, even if you plan on continuing on the venture capital side, you should really know what it's like to work at a startup. Um, and so I got, you know, some fantastic operational experience. What I was really passionate about uh, was this idea that I had sort of kicking around in my head related to um, careers and career information. Uh, I, I do a lot of career mentoring and and, and I teach at Fordham University. I teach an entrepreneurship course. And what I really see is sort of the problem in this area is um, lack of information. People, it's not that they don't know what they want to do. They don't know what's out there. You know, they don't, they don't know that, that, you know, product management as a, as a you know, career calling even exists. Um, I didn't, certainly didn't know it graduating college. And, um People don't realize that uh, you could be a physics major and work at a hedge fund, or you could be an anthropologist and go work for a marketing agency. Um, you know, but there are people who've actually done that. You know, and if you just had good information about what everybody wound up doing and where they wound up going, um, it'd be pretty helpful. So, uh, you know, we raised a so why you round of college. You could be like a career advisor at college. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I certainly thought of that, and, uh, you know, I think 
I think two issues for that is, is one, unfortunately, colleges don't really value that position enough to pay them any I'm, kind of I'm just salary. You, I'm just teasing you. I, I, I can imagine that you probably don't want to be a guidance counselor. But no, well, you actually, want to no, I'm, I'm actually 100% serious. It was something I really considered um, <laughs> and, and was good friends with one of the career directors at one of the local universities, and I, I inquired about a job, and she told me, Trust me, you don't want it. <laughs> you just, she said, do you know what the salary is? Trust me, you don't. You know, this is not going to be interesting to you. Um, but what the reality is the salary was a signal of what, you know, how important most universities consider that function, and unfortunately it's not very. Hmm. Um, so, but uh, the other so thing, though, is... you to do a startup to do exactly that, to do that on a scale of Well, right? exactly, and I, I, I kind of owe... Some of the inspiration to uh, one of the former Flatiron partners, uh, Jerry Colonna. Um, I, I went to go see Jerry when I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do, and, and he asked me. And I, you know, I mentioned this career thing, and he said, "Well, you know, why don't you go and do that?" And then, you know, I told him that why that wasn't such an interesting position. And he said to me, "He said, well, so you need to figure out how you can do that job without it being at that job." And, and you know, I knew I had this idea in the back of my head. I said, "You know, you're right." I said, "This is." It's, it's what I want to do. That's uh, that was the beginning of my uh, entrepreneurial effort. So, um, so you you raised money. And I I saw like you did it actually a pretty you 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 made like the world's like or New York City's like best angel round for for, for your your startup. Like you had like everybody investing in you. Like how yeah, how did we you had do that, and then what happened next? Well, so, uh, yeah, we had 21 angel investors, which you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, wasn't that difficult to manage? And, and actually, to be honest, it wasn't. These were all, you know, savvy venture professionals. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of term sheet wrangling or, or legal, you know, nitpicking. You know, it was a relatively friendly round from a term perspective. And, um, you know, like what I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, Go to the people who you know, but I, that doesn't necessarily mean friends and family. I mean, I, you know, my, my parents offered to put money into the round, and, you know, it's not like they have that much to put in, and, and I turned them away, and, I, you know, I, I said, you know, when you're doing an angel investment, you, you, you have to be willing to lose this money, and I really wasn't willing to lose, you know, family money on this. Um, but these were people that I've been working with. You know, the, there were... The, the team from the private equity group at GM uh, participated, and uh, uh, Fred and Brad, who I've been working with for, for two years and uh, got to know very well, were supportive. Um, and, you know, I just literally went, I would say, you know, 18 or 19 out of the 21 investors that we had were, you know, first, first, you know, first level connections, people that you know, I'd worked with while at USV or just known from the tech scene. And well, me and my partner, actually, how we wound up with a lot of those, my, my uh, co-founder, Alex Lyons, when we started out, we probably took, I don't know, about 40 or 50 meetings, not for pitching for an investment, literally for feedback. And sometimes for feedback on the idea, and sometimes for feedback from two-person co-founding teams to literally ask them, well, how do you make decisions between the two of you? You know, how, how, how do you, you get all those meetings? I mean, you, what, what would be the reason that you people would go and take a meeting with, you know, unknown analyst guy working uh, at Fred Wilson's firm? Well, well, that's the thing. I was an unknown analyst guy. I mean, uh, you know, Union Square at the time was, was a pretty well-known fund. And, and I'd been blogging since February of 2004. And so, uh, you know, my job, as I saw it, was to try and get to know as many innovative people as possible. And, you know, I still consider that to be my job. And so, you know, not because of anything special about me, but uh, because I've been dedicated to it for so long, I, I would say I probably know more people in the tech scene in New York than anybody. Um, now, I, I may not be as well known as somebody like Fred, but, you know, I, I, I sort of think that you could either have everyone know you or you get to know everyone, and, and I try and do the latter. Mm. So, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, random analyst using Fred's connections. I, I was literally just going to the people who I, you know, build my own relationships with, right. which I think is important, and it's something that I, 
you know, tell a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, I think it's a good filter and hurdle. You know, like if, if, if I'm to believe that you are going to create something successful and disruptive in your industry, how can I believe that you know what that is or how to do it unless you have built a network of successful, knowledgeable people? I mean, who have you learned from to, that, that, that this was the idea um, to, to change an industry or, or that these are the best practices or, you know, um, who have you been working with, you know? Um, it, it just seems very unlikely that somebody in a complete silo who has no connections whatsoever would suddenly have an idea fall into their lap and then somehow have, have the capability to move a startup forward. And it, it, it sort of takes a village. You know, yeah, for, I think you're right. For, for business development, for hiring, you know. Uh, I mean, like, for example, one of the things that I thought would be really interesting would be to try and get an angel investor who was one of the original founders of one of the big job boards. Um, and I networked my way to Richard Johnson, who is the founder of Hot Chops. Um, he didn't ultimately bite, but I was able, through my network, to get a meeting with him. And, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, some just, just getting his feedback uh, was incredibly useful. Um, and... So you're, you're pretty strict with how you're going for money, right? Because isn't the the, the the tourism without getting raising money is if you want money, ask for feedback. If you want feedback, ask for money. You know, it's it 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 is very true, and <laughs> and I I think that some people are better at not asking for money than others. You know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that. Clearly, are asking for money, but they, they, you know, they try and shroud it in something else. Um, you know, just recently, I, I, I took a breakfast meeting, and, and uh, you know, I, I feel like it was a little more of a pitch meeting than maybe it was described. Um, but, but you know, what I tell a lot of entrepreneurs is, is I could think of three or four businesses that I have been interacting with that I know will need to raise money and certainly would take a check if anyone wrote them one um, that I've just been interacting with on the product side just because I'm really fascinated by the idea and, and, and have sort of thinking about it and, um, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth. And, and those are people that came to me because they had some sense that it would be an idea that I was interested in and they just wanted to show it to me. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I think one of the determinants is that I know that they didn't show it to every single VC out there. You know, that's that's the point at which you're clearly raising around. You know, if I if I join your new social network and the other people who are my friends who are on there are all VCs, then you're kind of raising. You know, if 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 the other people I find on there are just like you know random designer, random hacker, you know, this VP of biz dev somewhere or whatever, then I'm more apt to buy into the idea that you're just looking for feedback. Mm. Fair enough. That's, that's interesting, though. Um, and so how did that company do? Um, so we, uh, we hung around for about two years and change, and... Uh, you know, so, so basically the plan was to leverage data that we had crawled off the web to paint a picture of what career paths look like and create some interesting analytical and interactive applications around it. Um, and so we decided we were going to raise about 350 grand to get a prototype sort of off the ground and, uh, and then, you know, raise a real venture round to kind of, you know, turn that into something of a business. Um, you know, everybody kind of nodded their heads around the table and said, yeah, sounds good. And, you know, we executed on that prototype. I, I think, you know, for a group of first-time entrepreneurs, I think it came out pretty well, and, and, you know, we got some positive feedback. But the timing of our venture round was that we were looking for venture capital money in October of 2008. And uh, that, that didn't fare too well. Um, you know, most of the early-stage investors were kind of closed for business. 
And, uh, you know, the reality is our project was something that, you know, really needed six engineers and, uh, you know, not two and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, so we kind of lost momentum a little bit at that point. Um, and, uh, Do you think you if you'd have had more money, you would have made it? Well, I think if we had more money, we, got, we would have gotten a lot more done. But I think it was a combination of two things. I think, you know, it was, it was certainly a bigger project as specced out than what we could have put together in our angel round. So it's funny, we actually got a pitch at first round yesterday uh, for somebody who was raising 300 grand, and I just said, I said, trust me, from somebody who took 350, 300 is not enough. Um, you know, if you're going to raise anything, raise 500, um, even if you think you only need 300. But, um, you know, certainly we could have executed better. Um, you know, and you always sort of imagine that there were things you could have done better in hindsight. Um but it was it was a bigger project than what a you know small angel round. I mean it's it's interesting. Somebody asked me the other day what I think of the whole lean startup movement, and I said you know that's that's good for some ideas and it's good if it fits you know the nature of how you work as an entrepreneur. But there are some ideas that you know need six engineers hacking away at something for 18 months before they discover real where the real value is. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be very lean. Um, you know, it's not a $20 million startup, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with data and analytics, you know, there may not be a, an immediately obvious customer um, until you sort of make the technological or, or computational discovery. Um, so certainly more money would have helped. You know, I, I certainly take responsibility over, you know, um, probably could have been a, a better product manager and set uh, better shorter-term milestones. Um, I think one of our biggest missteps was actually leaving potential revenue on the table. Um, in the job space, you know, if you put together a pool of profiles or resumes, it's, it's, it's monetizable. Um, you know, it's kind of an old, boring business that everybody else does. Um, but, you know, there, there's a way to make money off of it. And it, it wasn't the way to make money that we were most interested in. And so we, we didn't think we had to worry about it. But, you know, no one no one ever thinks the stock market's going to crash until it crashes. Right. And, you know, had had we maybe taken some of that, you know, focus and, and you know, put it towards maybe getting some early revenues that, you know, maybe we could have, lasted a little bit longer or hired another couple of engineers or, you know. Um, Do you think if, you're, if you'd have been doing that company during, like, 1999, would you have been, would it have been easy for you to raise your next round? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I think, uh, um, well, I mean, the, the, the certainly in that kind of funding environment, I mean, as a, it, it's funny because in 99, we probably wouldn't have had the technology that would have enabled us to do the crawling and natural language processing and, or certainly as inexpensively as we were able to do it. Um, and, and the other thing, which was critical to what we were working on, I mean, we were crawling profiles off the web. You know, there are upwards of 20 million resumes floating around online that we were analyzing. Um, so we literally had, like, other than the sort of engineering cost, you know, we didn't have a cost to acquire resumes for uh, analytical purposes. They were just mm. out there on Google was telling us where they were. Mm. Um, and and it, I had spoken to a couple of people at Vault.com, and they had, had looked into the idea of doing something similar um, years ago, but uh, there just literally weren't enough profiles around, um, and, the, and the technology wasn't there to sort of analyze them anyway. Mm. So after – so you, you basically – you went out again, you tried to raise money, you couldn't see, like, okay, well, you know, we're just going to have to shut this down and I'm going to do Yeah, we, we, we topped off our angel round a little bit. Uh, you know, a local fund here uh, gave us a little bit to sort of, you know, see if we can, uh, you know, uh, you know, possibly raise. And, uh, you know, we made it, we stretched it out. I mean, we made it last until September of 2009. And, 
you know, some pretty lean times. But eventually, you know, we made the call and said, you know, we we really need to work on this full time and, you know, see if we can sell it. Um, you know, in hindsight, one of the lessons learned is um, selling is a full time process. Trying to sell your company or sell the assets. Um, right now, I mean, we're seeing a number of talent acquisitions in the market, um, but very few IP and technology acquisitions and and. When those happen, it takes a while because you have to show somebody the value of, of the IP. Sometimes there's integration work to be done. Um, you know, and then, you know, we, we didn't necessarily realize that it would almost be a full-time job and found it incredibly difficult to try and facilitate a sale while we were working full-time in other jobs. Um, and, and actually, when you're doing something like algorithms, <laughs> you quickly learn that, Potential acquirers don't just want the code; they want the person who wrote the algorithm. Were you, so um, you were working full time somewhere else while you were doing this startup, were you? Uh, no, no, no. Just but 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 the point at which we stopped working on it full time was the point in which we looked to try and sell the assets, and that was just very difficult while we were doing other things. All uh, right. Were you able to make a sale? Um, we we did not find somebody who was just willing to to take the code as is. Uh, because we had all needed to take full-time jobs and weren't necessarily willing to go work at a potential big acquirer for, you know, a year if it wasn't uh, any kind of a viable exit, you know. I mean, it, I, our angel investor said to us, you know, if, if all this is going to be is trying to get, you know, half or three-quarters of our capital back and force you guys to go work at, you know, Monster for a year or whatever, they're like, don't, you know, don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's uh you know, it's not it's not worth it. Um, you know, so uh, so I joined first round in uh, October of last year, and and basically, you know, first round had been a very very active angel seed stage investor. Actually, before we go on, to, I want to talk yeah, about sure. first round. But before we go on to that, I'm just <laughs> I'm really interested to understand this this time where, so you, you have, I mean, can you put your your personal reputation on the line, your social capital with all of these mm-hmm. angels? Now, these guys know going in that they could lose their money, and they did. Absolutely. And so, but was there, were any of them pissed, or was their point of view like, was it, it was more like, hey, you don't have to go and work at, you know, big, boring companies to go and, like, make sure we get part of our money back. Like, don't worry about it. Was that generally the attitude? Like, how do they generally take it? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Certain people volunteered that, um, you know, and, and, you know, maybe certain people didn't didn't necessarily feel that way. Um, I think one of the most difficult parts um, is communication with, you know, if you have multiple angels, and especially the number that we did, you know, um, some people in that group are really just going to get occasional email updates, you know, and, and if the email updates say, you know, hey, venture market's difficult, and then a month later, you know, um, hey, you know, it looks like we're trying to see if we can generate some 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 revenues, but it's going to be closed. And then the next one is, you know, hey, it looks like we're going to have to start a selling process. And then the one after that is, hey, it doesn't look like anyone wants to buy this. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for them to know how hard we're working. You know, I mean, there were nights where... I mean, there was literally just nothing for me to do, but I stayed until midnight anyway, and I was just, you know, randomly reaching out to people that I thought might be interested in the in the assets, and and you know, um, because I just felt, you know, a deep sense of responsibility, and uh, you know, I, I I was actually very pleasantly surprised by by the reaction of a lot of our angels who said, look, you know, we we know you guys worked hard on this thing, and uh, and and. The economic environment, uh, you know, one of our angels said, hey, you know, you you started jobs in recruiting-related company, you know, six months ahead of the worst recession we've seen in 50 years. Like, what, realistically, what did we expect the outcome to be here? Um, so so uh, they were pretty reasonable, and, and – uh, and then you know what? I mean, uh, I maintain very good relationships with uh, all, you know most of the folks that are involved, and uh, you know a lot of them are are angels in the community, and and they're people that um, 
you know, while I've been at my new job, you know, we've we've looked at some deals together with and uh, and, and and done some with. <laughs> and I guess if you raise three hundred and fifty grand across twenty one angels, so they're they're only giving you what ten grand each or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, ten or ten or twenty grand. It it didn't. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously nobody likes to lose money, but uh, it, it's not as if we had people writing million dollar checks. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um. I want to just um, take a, a total, like, different question, and then we'll go on to first round. Um, sure. One of my friends who is in the – he's more in the direct response space, affiliate marketing. Um, he's, he's built a, a bunch of multimillion-dollar companies. You know, it's sort of – he gets them to about $50 million. He's had a couple of exits. He does, he does, he does pretty well. Um, he's always built his stuff completely from the ground up, self-funded, and just made his own way. His comment to me always about venture capital is he says venture capital is just basically a, a, a bogus investment. It's just like marketing stuff, and it's, there's not really anything like serious behind it. It's just it's sort of managing the politics of a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Um, what would be your response to him? Um, well, I, I, you know, I certainly think that there are entrepreneurs who feel that way, and there are certainly entrepreneurs that feel like. You know, their VC or their angel investor helped, you know, was critical to their the success of their business. Um, you know, and and I think it really depends on who you work with. Um, and, yeah, there, there is a wide range of value adds of investors. Um, and, uh, you know, probably also depends on the stage, right? Like if you're talking about a late stage investment where somebody writes a $20 million check because you've already got $15 million of free cash flow, yeah. that's probably going to be just money, you know, and, and, uh, and not much more than that. But, you know, when, when somebody writes you a $2 million check and is literally helping you, you know, think about the organizational structure that, that gives you the, the best chance of succeeding and is, and is helping you hire somebody, um, you know, for example, uh, I had a meeting with, uh, with Nick Beam from Matrix, and, you know, he's uh, behind the ladders and Guild Group and a lot of successful investments. And, and he said that the, the most value-add that you can be to a startup is help them make a key hire. And he was telling me a story about how uh, the ladders really needed a board member. Like, they, they really, that was important. And they wanted somebody who had come from sort of a marketplace background. And so there was a guy that they identified from, from eBay who was, like, really critical and was the perfect guy. And, uh, but he had sort of dropped off the radar. It wasn't really accessible and it moved to Florida or whatever. Nick found an address for him in one of these sort of public address directories. Uh, FedEx, a handwritten letter to him and said, you know, hey, I'm an investor with this company, it's doing well, you know, blah, 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 like we really want to, uh, you know, a board member, you know, would love to talk to you about the investment. FedEx did, gave him his card. Guy called Nick up the next day and said, hey, this sounds great. I, you know, I really appreciate the, the letter and, and uh, you know, I definitely know who you guys are and would love to talk about it. And that's how he recruited that, that board member. You know, I mean, I don't know too many stories of, of, you know, VCs who are sort of willing willing and able to do that kind of thing. Um, and, it, and, it, and it seems small and simple, but, you know, that board member could be really impactful to that, that company. Um, or, you know, what if it's your first VP of marketing, um, you know, and it comes out of the VC's network. Um, you know, so... I think there are ways of being, you know, value-add, um, and, and it certainly depends on the stage. I think the earlier, you know, the earlier you go, the more opportunity you have to make a difference in a company. Now, you know, in, in terms of is that money worth it based on, you know, the ownership that it's taken, well, if it's not, and you're the entrepreneur, and you have an alternative option, don't take it. You know, I mean, that's it's just pretty simple. You know, it's nobody's no VC is. Uh, you know, I, I sort of laugh a little bit about the, you know, all of these VCs taking too much of my company. 
No, it's it's you selling the company at that price. Like, nope. VC can't force their way into your company. It's not like some public market corporate takeover where somebody starts buying up your shares on the open market. Um, it's a negotiated transaction. If you don't like the price or you don't like the terms, you're more than happy to walk away. Oh, okay. So you, you signed up to work with Josh from Half.com who uh, sold to eBay for like a gazillion dollars. And he's one of the like, basically one of the top and, and one of the really like high, high caliber internet guys out on the East Coast, right? So you're now in residence with his firm. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, so that's actually the third exit that Josh had. So, uh, not only did he do half, but, uh, um, uh, exited two other companies. Um, and, and he's only like 38 or something like that. So, uh, he's, he's, he's accomplished a lot in a very short time period and is, is so very he started much building companies when he was five, did he? Uh, I'm sure there was a lemonade stand somewhere along the, that, that first. Which he managed to have a successful exit in as well. He just doesn't put that I, on his I, I, have, I have no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. <laughs> so, um, so um, how, did, how did that happen? Why are you an entrepreneur in residence there rather than an analyst or doing something else? Like, what, what is it that, that you actually do, and what is, what's the difference between an entrepreneur in residence and, and other things? Sure. Well, um, hopefully I wouldn't be an analyst. I think hopefully I think by now I've probably you know uh, gotten enough uh, experience under my belt to progress past that. But but you know the UIR title is a little bit of a misnomer because what I what I wound up um, uh, working on there was uh, basically working on early stage deal flow. Um, but the interaction was basically. Um, First round had done over a dozen deals in New York, but they didn't have a full-time independent office. Uh, Howard Morgan is one of the partners, had maintained an office in New York at one of his portfolio companies, but, you know, was maybe here about 60% of the time or so, and, and uh, certainly didn't have the branding of being a real, you know, first-round office. And they kind of did deals like ninjas. <laughs> they they would jump in and do a deal and jump out. And then, you know, not a lot of people knew them or knew a lot about their investment strategy or their stage or whatever. So uh, there are a couple of competitive deals going on in New York, and they realized how many deals they've gotten done here and, and just come to this conclusion that, you know, New York was going to be really – uh, central to their success going forward, and was definitely a place to be. And then they wanted to be on that list of, of you know, New York VCs. And I, I think, you know, they were certainly considered to be a, a top-tier early-stage investor, but weren't perceived to be, you know, part of the New York scene, um, despite the fact that they had the track record to prove it. Um, they'd invested in... Uh, and companies like Double Verify or Invite, which just sold to Google, and uh, you know, done a number of really good deals here. And so, um, 33 across. So, uh, you know, right around the time that I was sort of trying to wrap up my company and trying to figure out what the next thing I was going to do, uh, you know, I I had actually interviewed with another VC that you know I, I didn't feel like at the time they had a clear sense of how to address the New York market. So I actually wrote a blog post about it. And I said, you know, free business plan. Here's how I would address, here's how I would create a, a, a venture capital firm in New York. And, you know, walk through point by point. You know, here's how I would create community around my firm. You know, here's how I would uh, position things and whatever. And, uh, you know, just published it. And I saw Josh at, a, at an event that I had thrown. And, you know, he said, hey, you know, I read your blog post, and, you know, we totally see eye to eye on, you know, how important New York is and how we want to position ourselves. And, you know, we're, we're thinking that, you know, we need to have somebody on the ground here, and, uh, you know, we'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Um, and then, you know, he said, well, you know, what's going on with your business? I know you haven't raised, you know. Um, and, and uh, you know, I said, well, you know, in a couple of days I'm going to be looking for a job. So, so it was sort of right place at the right time. 
Um, the EIR thing basically came out of the fact that, you know, Josh said to me, look, I, you know, I'm not going to make a bet that you know exactly what you want to do, whether or not you want to try the entrepreneurial thing again or go back to the VC side. So, you know, why don't you just come here and, you know, hang out for a year and, you know, help us get plugged into the New York scene, you know, uh, toss whatever comes your way over your shoulder towards us, and, um, you know, we'll see if we can sort of help you figure it out. And <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like a really cool guy to work with. Yes, yes, very much so. And you know, he basically said, "Look, you know, four to six months from now, let's let's kind of let's check in and you know maybe establish a little bit more about you know what what your goals are as they you know take shape and let's take an open dialogue and and you know that's what he what we did and you know um, 99 days into." Uh, uh, you know, my uh, my tenure in first round, I got my first term sheet out. So, uh, you know, pretty pretty quickly I uh, jumped in on the, uh, the early stage deal doing side and uh, have uh, four four deals. Well, I, was, I, have a term, I have a signed term sheet out on deal number four, and, and you know, high likelihood that it'll close. So, you, you're you're becoming not really an entrepreneur in residence. You're turning into a big yeah, um, it's, um, it's 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 not an entrepreneurial in residence in the in the traditional sense of that I'm you know building a company or looking at a market. So are you still figuring it out, or is that the direction you're going to end up being like a, a VC? Yeah, I think I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm headed towards the VC side. Uh, you know I'm I, I never really considered myself a serial entrepreneur. Uh, my interest in careers was a specific interest in that industry and had come from, you know, mentoring and teaching. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these sort of um, ARB guys who, who says, well, you know, here's a market over here. That's untouched. You know, I could do this to it and, and you know, churns out one of those ideas every year. Um, you, know, I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm more of a you know, portfolio constructor. I'm a you know really intensive in terms of teaching and um, you know trying to provide some some help early on and you know probably make a better VC than I do an entrepreneur. Hmm. Cool. We're almost out of time. Is there anything you want to talk about which you haven't covered? I think just in general, the the New York market is something that is very very exciting to me. I mean when. When I was at GM, I actually applied to Stanford because I thought to be a VC, you had to go to, you know, get your MBA from, you know, sort of Stanford or Harvard and go move out to the West Coast. And, you know, five or six years later, I'm very happy to see that there is a, you know, thriving community in my own backyard and I never had to move anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very real. Um, and, I, and I can definitely see you know, much more permanent structures, both social and financial, being being built here uh, to support a community going over the long term. And it's it's very exciting. And the quality of entrepreneurs that I deal with, you know, just compared to, you know, five or six years ago in New York has definitely gone up. Hmm. Very cool. And you also run um, a pretty cool New York newsletter for those interested in the New York scene. Do you want to just give the name and, and how people can sign up? Yeah, sure. It's uh, what do I even call it? It's uh, this week in the New York innovation community. Uh, there's a link to it uh, on my blog, which is at thisisgoingtobebig.com, um, and it largely comes out of the fact that you know I have to be out there and networking and learning, and so you know I, I kind of take a look at all the events for the week and try to figure out what I'm going to go to. And people started asking me, you know, what the cool things to go to were and asked me to invite them. I said, well, you know, that doesn't really scale on an individual basis. And so, uh, um, you know, uh, about nine months ago, I, I decided to put all these people on an email list. And, you know, every week I just send out, you know, what's going on in New York, you know, what's the stuff worth going to. And, uh, you know, and it, the other day I heard a friend who, you know, was at an event and they were tweeting about how boring it was or is a bad speaker. And I direct messaged them. I said, well, Dude, of course it wasn't any good. I I didn't put it on the list this week. I don't know why you went to it. That's interesting. I didn't realize it was actually like the picks of stuff you're actively going through. 
Uh, well, I try and make as much of it as I can or just, you know, I mean, growing up in New York and still having sort of home friends and college friends and family here, it's sometimes tough to balance the calendar. So I, I don't get a chance to make uh, but everything, but I try to go as much stuff as possible. That's a good feel. I didn't, I mean, because I've been reading that newsletter, I didn't realize that was your picks as someone who really has his ear to the ground of, of what's, what's going on. So, in fact, that might be a good place for people out of town to watch as well. If you want to come to New York and uh, you want to see what, what, what's to go to, like, look at what Charlie's going to. Um, may, do, you, do you have, like, a filter level? Like, you know, because I, I know there's a lot of stuff in the newsletter. Is there a filter where, like, okay, if there's only one thing this week, this is what you've got to go to? Um, sometimes I'll sort of pick out the, uh, you know, the event of the week. Uh, you know, if there's no sort of clear-cut winner, I won't put anything. But it, it, occasionally I've, I've done that. Um, you know, it comes from, you know, I know most of the other people who throw events and, uh, you know, know who really uh, goes out of their, you know, goes out of their way to put something on that's quality or, or just, like, knows, you know, has the best network of people so they get the best, uh, Speakers. I mean, you know, in general, you know, the tech meetups are great. Um, uh, Tikva Morawati runs the uh, Ignite, and and those are you know uh, phenomenal. And there's there's a bunch of really great uh, uh, meetups. The New York Gaming Meetup uh, that Brad Hargraves runs, or uh, um, you know, there's there's a couple of hacker events uh, actually run at, at meetups headquarters. So it's a pretty thriving community, and it's a lot of high quality stuff. Cool. Okay. Um, why don't we wrap it up there? And so, Charlie, thanks very much for your time. No problem. Appreciate it.